Gospels to John. What's the last chapter in the book of John? 21. Chapter 21. John 21. This week, and Lord willing, next week, we will finish this exposition of an explanation of the Gospel of John. And uh, I'm going to miss it. I really am. And I chose this, this, this gospel for many reasons, which I told you, and I'll probably remind you next week of why I to- chose this gospel. But I just love it that the guy that referred to himself as the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved gave us this gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit so that we could spend some time with Jesus. And uh, I love in, in Acts, and I refer to this too, in Acts it talks about how they could tell they, they had been with Jesus, speaking to the disciples. I mean, I want people to tell that I've been with Jesus. Don't you? I want people to look at my life and say, man, he's been with Jesus. And I'd just like it'd be great just to spend some time, some extended time, and some extended time, right, in one of the Gospels and just spend some time with Jesus. Now, the whole book's about Jesus, right, from Genesis to Revelation. It is, but just to spend some time looking at his life and his ministry and why he came and, and his words, um, and they have poured over me and, and, and I think have changed me for much the better. And I hope they will, you as well, uh, as we finish out this gospel. But this morning we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of chapter 21. And the title of the message this morning is, Come and Have Breakfast. Or, here's a subtitle, Trust in Me. Come and have breakfast. Which are Jesus' words. Trust in me. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us see the point of this passage, what he is trying to get across to the original, uh, to the disciples, to the original readers of this gospel, and then to us as well. Lord, uh, we again come to you to worship you through your word. We have been worshiping you, Lord, through song, uh, through the Lord's Supper, through prayer, through fellowship, through our lives. And Lord, now we come to worship you, to ascribe worth to you, to make much of you uh, to expose your glory, to explain your glory, to explain how great you are through your words. So Lord, help us as we do that. Help me as I lead in that and help us all, Lord, to be changed by your word this morning. Lord, remind us that when we are looking at your word, we are reading your word, we're hearing your word, that we are being instructed by you personally and corporately. Lord, help us respond in a way that honors you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what if I told you that uh, Helen Jones and Ember Harden, and Ember is one of our younger kids. How old is Ember now? Nine years old. Okay, Helen and Ember. We're going to team up and participate in a race across the USA and back. And they were going to race me and Clint Rupley. Now, Clint's not here this morning. He's working. But I just thought about the biggest guy in our body. All right? And Clint is probably that. And I'm close to that. All right? One of the bigger people. And just thought about, we're going to race. And it's a car race. It's an automobile race. And each team has been offered graciously by Porsche, a brand new Porsche, to race across the United States and back. So it's Clint and I, all right, against Helen and Ember. All right? And Ember and uh, Helen graciously received the gift of the new Porsche. The latest and greatest technology Porsche has to offer. Clint and I reject the offer 
of a silly Porsche. Instead, we choose to build our own car out of parts we get out of the junkyard. So we diligently use all of our strength and our intellect about automobiles and build a car in which to race. And we have 24 hours to build it. So who would you pick to win? Clint? Big Clint. I mean, this, he's a big guy, right? And me? Or Helen? Ember? We said this Clint and me in our jalopy that might not even start <coughs> against Helen and Ember in a new Porsche. Well, of course you would pick Helen and Ember to win this race across the United States. You see, they're trusting in something that will actually be successful. And Clint and I are trusting in the futility of our own strength and wisdom in doing something we are completely insufficient in doing. We don't have the capability to do what we've been asked, what we, what we chose to do. In a greater way, we all act like Clint and I in this silly illustration when we try to do life our way, in our own wisdom, in our own strength. We attempt to fulfill God's purpose and mission in our life, in our own strength and wisdom, and the futility of our own strength and wisdom, the uselessness of our resources when it comes to fulfilling the mission of the church. Jesus offers us power, his power, his resources to accomplish the humanly impossible task of making disciples of every, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's humanly impossible. But Jesus offers us his power and his resources to accomplish it. Will we accept his offer and see fruitfulness or will we rely in ourselves and see fruitlessness? Our pastors this morning, Jesus speaks about that to some of his disciples here after he's risen again. So let's look at this passage in verses 1 through 14 and allow God's word to encourage and challenge, hopefully to change us. And, and you're going to see some things jump off the page. You will not miss the application or the implication of the text for your life. And there'll be a lot just as we walk through these uh, verses. But at the end, I want to come back and point out two overarching ones that I think encompass everything that's involved in this text. But let's begin by being reminded of the context. Uh, Jesus rose from the grave in chapter 20. Uh, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to 10 of the disciples that were locked away and hiding because they were fearful of what might happen to them. Then he came back to the same 10 because there was one more guy who wasn't there. Remember Thomas? And, and Jesus appeared... To, to him, and during that time with those 10 and 11, he, he commissioned them. He remember the sent ones, he sent them out. He was sending them out to fulfill the mission of the church to, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to go in the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaim forgiveness through Christ. That's what he, that's what he said he, was gonna, he wanted them to do. And that brings us here to chapter 21. So that's the context. He just commissioned them to do this thing. So look with me in verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. So after the events of chapter 20, where Jesus appeared to the disciples a couple of times, uh, the disciples went to Galilee, 
in obedience to Jesus' command. Now, we learn from Matthew and Mark, two of the other Gospels, that Jesus had commanded them to go and meet me in Galilee. So they go. It's, we don't know exactly the time period, how much time, you know, maybe a few days. And they took the 80-mile the journey to, back to Galilee uh, from Jerusalem. No longer in Jerusalem, they're in Galilee. So they, we know that they obeyed Jesus and they went back to Galilee because that's where we find them here in this. And John tells us that the events of this chapter took place in, 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 at the Sea of Galilee, or as your text may say, uh, the Sea of Tiberius, Tiberius, as John records it. Now in John's time, that's what this sea was uh, called was the, the, the Sea of Tiberias. And the reason why is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. We'd probably call it more of a lake, but it's called the Sea of Galilee. It was this city called Tiberias and, it, Tiberias, and it was a famous and prominent city at the time. So that's why we have here, John wrote this at a time when it was actually called that. It's actually been called about five different names uh, through what we have, it, it have recorded in history. But here, that's, I just want to make sure we understand where they are. So it was here, John says, that Jesus manifested himself. He appeared to his disciples. Uh, and he's going to teach them some amazing things in this time he has with them. If you remember that uh, in the beginning of our gospel, in what's called the prologue, this is kind of the, the, the addendum, not really the addendum, really the, the closing of John, the beginning of John, uh, we saw that Jesus came to make known the Father, to manifest to the world who God was. And he's not done manifesting who God was and who God is, and, and it's embodied in himself. So he manifests himself. He appears to them uh, to teach them something. And, and it's, just, it's just what hit me, not necessarily what he taught them, but what, I, what jumped out at me in this text immediately was he was still teaching them. He loved them so much that his last days on earth, he wasn't done teaching them. He taught them because he loved them, and he wanted them to know Something He wanted them to learn something that would be essential for their success when he was no longer with them physically. He would no longer be appearing to them as he was over these days before he ascended to heaven. Appearing to them, uh, it, it wasn't every day, but he appeared to them quite a few times. That would no longer happen physically. And he wanted them to know this truth. So look with me at verse 2. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus... Which, which means tent, twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So we see here that, that John says that seven of the original disciples were involved in this event. Uh, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, and then we know James and John, because they're the, they're the sons of Zebedee. They're also known as the sons of thunder. Um, but they're the sons of Zebedee. And then two unnamed. We're not sure who the other two were. John doesn't mention them. Uh, so John has now told us, just in the first two verses, the where, where this took place, and who was involved. And now he's going to tell us the what. Here's what happened at this place with these people. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So some suggest that Peter's action here was a lack of faith. He got fed up waiting for Jesus, and he's just going to go back to his own job, forget about this great commission of being sent ones and going to the world and the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. Forget about it. I don't think the text and the context warrants that kind of interpretation. I, don't, I just think that's wrong. Um, I, instead, Peter, uh, who was never much for sitting around, you know, if you know anything about Peter, he was always action. And I think here you got a guy who likes to do stuff. He didn't like to sit around. 
It's like John L's dad when he was alive. This guy never sat down. You wonder where John L, John L gets from? From her dad. All right? He never sat down. We can, he was always moving, always moving, always doing something. He just couldn't sit down. He was always doing I think Peter was a lot like Bob Pinkerton. He just couldn't sit down. He couldn't just wait around and do nothing while he was waiting for Jesus. I don't think he quit waiting for Jesus. He just had to do something. So what's he do? He goes fishing. Well, why would he go fishing? Well, many, many reasons. That's what he had done most of his, his adult life. He had done that more than he had followed Jesus for the, the three years of ministry. And that's just what he knew to do. Um, and uh, the other guys jump in. Uh, um, and, or as one man put it, I, I like this. Even though Jesus be crucified, risen from the dead, the disciples must still eat. Right? They've got to eat. And, and there's this, that's just part of life. So they went fishing maybe just to eat. We don't know. And I think to, to read too much into the text here is dangerous. So I don't want to read too much in the text. I just think we went fishing and to do something. And as, as they were waiting for Jesus. So Peter and these other six, they, they go out at night to fish. And we must remember these men are professional fishermen. That's what Jesus called them away from. They knew fishing like no one else. They were the Bert Moritz of the day. All right, if you know Bert. I mean, this guy knows fishing. And that's what they, they, they knew what they were doing. They knew when to go. They went at night, which was the best time to fish in, on the Sea of Galilee. They knew the best spots in the sea at that time of year. Uh, they knew how to precisely throw out their nets and how to bring them in. They'd done it hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times. In fact, if they were living today, they would have their own TV show, their own fishing show. You know, Bill Dance and some of these other guys, they would have the, the disciples. Peter's Fishing Show. I'd be right there on ESPN, ESPN2, whatever it showed. I don't, I don't watch those things because I've never been much into uh, um, uh, fishing because I haven't been very successful. But uh, maybe if I watch those shows, I would help. If I, that was show on, I might watch it. But uh, these guys just knew fishing. That's the point. They were professionals. Yet even with all this, verse 3 ends with what? They caught nothing. Nothing. You never watch those TV shows and they catch nothing. All right? Now, maybe they just only show when they catch one, right? But they catch them in professional fishermen. They catch fish, and these guys were good. So with all their expertise and all their training, all their hard work, they caught nothing. Let me say that again. They caught nothing. Say that with me. They caught nothing. This is important in this text. They caught nothing. You see, Jesus is in the process here, even in these events that are going on here, which seem just, just kind of explaining the day, what was happening until Jesus showed up. It's way more than that. Jesus is teaching them something essential that he's already mentioned before, actually. And this is evidence as we look at the rest of this event, beginning in verse 4. Look there at verse 4, the very first word, but. Um, let me go back. Remember, there's no verses in the original. They put that to help us find things. So let's go back to the end of verse 3 and, and read this again. They caught nothing but. John means for us to see a huge contrast here. Anytime you see the word but in scripture, you should circle it, put a box, put boxes around mine, all right? Something to highlight. There is a contrast here, and he wants us to see the contrast here between the disciples catching nothing and what was getting ready to happen. So let's see what happens. They caught nothing, but when the day was breaking, so it's early in the morning, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus enters the story. And when Jesus enters the story, that's a good thing. Whenever he shows up, good things happen. And that's what's going to happen. 
Yet, yet John says they didn't recognize him. Now, now perhaps it was since the day was breaking, it was early in the morning, and, and we learn from verse 8, they were, it was 100 yards he was, they were 100 yards away from the shore. So imagine looking across to a shore, across the football field, early in the morning. And maybe they just couldn't see and make out exactly who it was. There could have been mist in the air, who knows what. Or, as we see other places in, in Jesus' resurrection appearances, the, the, the road to Emmaus, when he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, they didn't recognize it as Jesus, right? But he manifested himself to them so they could recognize it was Jesus. It could be either one of those things the text doesn't say, but they, it does tell us that they didn't recognize him. What, um, so look at verse 5. So Jesus said to them, so he's obviously speaking loud enough, and it helps that it's water because your voice travels on water. That's why it's so loud at swimming pools, just in case you didn't know that. All right? It's just loud. You know, you're just talking regular. It's loud. He, 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 he says something to him across the water. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answer him, No. Now, the way in which Jesus asks this question assumes a negative answer. Just the, the, the way that the Greek is put together, the construction of this question assumes a negative answer. He knows they didn't catch anything. In a sense, he says, you didn't catch anything, did you? That's the question, which is really making a statement. You didn't catch anything, did you? And, of course, they answer no. They don't lie to him like most fishermen do. All right, at least they're honest. So let's look at verse 6. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and when they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Why these professional fishermen would, who used all their own skill, effort, expertise to, to fish all night and catch nothing, why in the world they would listen to a man they can't see, or don't know who, exactly who it is, we don't know, it doesn't tell us, but they do. They listen to what he says. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And, and they listen to him and the results are incredible. It catch so big they were unable to pull the net into the boat. The, the, the thought is this boat's about 20 feet long. That was the, they, they excavated and found boats for that time there around the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20, 23 feet, feet, feet long. And so they, it was so big they couldn't get the net into the boat. That's how heavy it was and such a great fit, catch of fish. So, and I love what happens next, beginning in verse 7. Look there. Therefore, based on the miraculous catch of fish, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. John, ever the perceptive one, says to Peter, It's the Lord. I mean, brilliant, right? They just had this miraculous catch of fish. And he said, Oh, it must be Jesus. I mean, he knows enough. He's perceptive enough to know this could only happen if Jesus showed up. So I think the guy over there, I, I just know it's the Lord, Peter. Uh, and usually when miraculous things show up and happen, I would say, yeah, that's the Lord. All right, that's the Lord, and that's what he does. And, and, and Peter then, he responds as well. John responds with, okay, I think I've seen something like this before. And that's amazing. It's the Lord. And Peter hears it. And what's Peter do? So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garments on for his strip for work and threw himself into the sea. As usual, John had great insight and Peter had great action. Right? Not a lot of thought in, in, in Peter's uh, mind going on sometimes. He just usually just jumps right in. And that's, he literally jumped right in. Uh, it, it says here that the, the word that's used, uh, you could say he was naked. He probably had his undergarments on, and often when it was, they were fishing and working hard, they would take their outer robe off, and he was just probably like wearing a pair of shorts, we might think, and just working hard, and all of a sudden, and, and coming back in from a, where they caught nothing, and, 
And he sees, and he feels Jesus, he throws on his outer garment and he jumps in and heads to shore. Oh, that we would respond with the inside of John and recognize and give credit to Jesus when we see amazing things. And that we would respond with action and run, or in this case, swim to the very presence of Jesus as fast as we can, like Peter. Both of their responses are proper. They're right. John's to this amazing thing that happened could only be explained by the Lord. But often we'll see amazing things and we'll try to explain the Lord away. Well, here's what happened. This happened this way and because of this happened, if you put these things together and then that's what happened. I'm telling you, it happened because of God. And people to try to, and, and I, love, I love to cycle. I don't get a chance to cycle like I used to. In fact, I don't get to cycle hardly much at all anymore. And when I say cycle, I'm talking about like a road bike and go out for 20, 30, 40, 50 miles, something like that. It doesn't sound fun to some people, but I enjoyed it. And there's a guy named Lance Armstrong who cheated and won seven uh, Tour de France, as we know. And uh, but Lance Armstrong, when he overcame cancer, people asked him, hey, man, isn't it great that the Lord you know, healed you? So he, the Lord had nothing to do with it. It was all the drugs and my hard work and my willpower. I'm telling you, Lance, it wasn't. Who gave them the wisdom that you the drugs? Who gave you a, a heart and a mind that works hard? God. It's always about God. It's always explained about God. We can't explain those things away. And oh, that we would be like John. And when we see things, we say, that's all about God. Only can be explained by God. And we can be like Peter. And when we, we see that and we realize as the Lord, we can't wait to get to him to say, Lord, thank you. How can I, what, what do you need me to do? Lord, I just want to bow down at your feet and worship you. I told you there's tons of implications here in this text, aren't there? And we can, that looks a lot different for all of us, but what a response. So what was Jesus teaching them by this miraculous catch of fish? Remember the end of chapter 20, Jesus commissioned them to what? To go in the power of the Holy Spirit and preach the gospel all over the world. The next thing we see them doing is fishing. Using their own strength and skill as fishermen to catch fish. And they what? Caught how much? Nothing. They caught nothing. Jesus shows up, tells them to cast again. They do, and they catch abundantly. He is teaching them something in full color that they had once only understood in black and white. We say that again. He's teaching them something in full color. I'm talking about HD here. Something they had already learned in black and white earlier. And that's found in John 15, 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Now, you all read this last line with me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What did they catch? Nothing. Nothing. Earlier he told them they were become fishers of men. And just like with these fish, if they try to catch men in their own strength, with their own skill, their own mental capacity, they would catch what? Nothing. They could do nothing apart from him. But when they obey Jesus and rely on his power, just like the fish, they would see abundant results. The power and ability to fulfill the mission he gave them was found in him. And that's what he's teaching him then. Why, why do you think they caught nothing? Just a bad night for fishing? No. There was lots of fish, weren't there, in that, in that same water at that time. We know that because he tells them to cast your net again. 
He just caused the fish don't come anywhere that near that boat until I tell you. And then when, and you may laugh. That's, I believe that with all my heart. Because the fish were there. And they were in abundance. They weren't all hanging out at the bottom because they caught a huge abundance. As soon as he said yes. He caused them to come near the boat because I want to teach these guys something. Before I leave, they need to learn this. Instead of being self-reliant, they needed to become Savior-reliant. And instead of us being self-reliant, we need to become Savior-reliant. We must rely on the Savior. Now look what happened next to further emphasize this point, beginning in verse 8, and I'll read down through verse 10. But the other disciples came in the little boat, they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. The rest of the disciples, they finally get here on shore. Now Peter's there waiting, and they find that Jesus had already started breakfast. wonder where he got his fish. Doesn't tell us, but he's Jesus. He can get his fish anywhere and any way he wants. And he's already got them. They've been working hard out there and all that. Didn't catch anything, but when they relied on him, they caught an abundance. He's got some fish already on a charcoal fire. Before his crucifixion, if you remember this, in that upper room, with Judas still there, they all gathered in the upper room. And I believe because with the other gospels, some of them are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. The sons of thunder are. And they're arguing about all these different things. And they forgot something very important, didn't they? Who was going to wash the feet? As they're arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus serves them. He takes up a towel and he washes their feet before the crucifixion. Who would serve them after the crucifixion? Jesus. So now we find Jesus serving them by feeding them on this morning when he's appeared to them. He would forever serve them and empower them for the ministry he had called them to. Now look at verse 11. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Now the fact that Peter does not miss this, the fact they couldn't draw this net into the boat because it's so, so amazingly uh, heavy with fish. The fact that Peter could drag this net to shore shows how physically powerful Peter was. Yet, without Jesus' power, there would not have been so many fish to drag to shore. In fact, there had been no fish. See the contrast there? I mean, Peter is one powerful man. If he can drag this net to shore, he's powerful. We'd all say that. This is Samson-like almost. Yet, Without Jesus' power, there would be no fish to drag to shore. There's been much written as to what, more than I even thought as I studied this, about what's significant about the number 153. Man, anytime numbers come in the Bible, it's unbelievable how much people write on it. And then they miss the whole point of the passage, if you ask me. All right? Um, but Jerome... Uh, who lived, a godly man who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, refers to a guy, when he's writing about this, called Opian, who was a naturalist. So he was kind of a, a, a maybe a, a studied oceanography or something like that, um, but th this kind of guy. And, 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 um, and he said that, that Opian said there was 153 different species of fish in the world at this time. Therefore, the catch of 153 fish points to the fact that the fulfillment of the mission would yield people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
And, and, and here's what I say. Here's what I would say to that. It is true that the fulfillment of the mission will yield people from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Because what we find in Revelation, before the throne of God, when it's all over, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. However, the problem with that is that Opian's list was not 153. It was actually 157. So the number is 153. And all of our texts, that we, all the ancient manuscripts we have of John is 153. And... Jerome pointed to this as Opian saying this, but Opian's d- d- documents say 157. Others have tried to point to the fact, and, I, and again, I'm not saying that there's nothing connected to that, but I don't. Th- it doesn't explain it. And, and you do go, and th- this was the first time that sh- that that, con- that um, interpretation or commentary on this passage came up was in the fourth or fifth century. So we got to be real careful to say, oh yeah, that's definitely it. It's pretty cool to think that. And definitely there's some truth in the fact that, yes, all right, that there's people from every tribe, tongue, and people, nation are going to come to the Lord. Uh, others have tried to point to the fact that each, he, each letter in the Hebrew number, and there's actually the, the words that were used here speaking the Sea of Galilee, and it's near a place called Engedi. And if you take those, the Hebrew word, and there's a, there's a number that goes with every single letter, Okay, and you add up those numbers somehow. It, it's a derivative of 153, and, and, and you add and multiply these things together, and all of a sudden it's 153. And, uh, um, and which points to the places, if you put those numbers together, it tells you the places where you're supposed to cast your nets, and that's where you'll get be fishers of men. Um, I don't know. And it gets more bizarre as things go on. D.A. Carson shows a problem with this when he writes... Of course, the solution supposes the readers understood Hebrew. That is extremely unlikely in a book where elementary Hebrew words have to be transliterated. But every time that he brings up a Hebrew word, he says, which means. Okay? So the, the, the readers would understand um, and be able to read Hebrew and figure out all the numbers to come up with 153 is pretty far-fetched. All right? I say all that to say, we don't know. All right? And to spend our time trying to figure that out. There's more amazing, you can say, well, that'd be pretty amazing if he did that. You know what? There's more amazing things in the Bible than figuring out what the 153 is. All right? And again, there may be some truth in that. I don't know. We, we just don't know. The more likely explanation is that John mentions this for historical detail. Who would know there's 153 exactly? Only someone who had been there. And John is a witness to this, and he keeps bringing that up. He was there. And shows, there were so many fish that they counted them. They were just amazed. Well, let's count how many are there here? Which also a practice of fishermen that fished together. They would count them and they were dividing them. All right? So it was a normal practice. But there's so many. They just had to count how many are here. Unbelievable. Look, there's 153. I think that's much more um, accurate to understanding this. But, but I also think that it, it brings attention to the abundance of the catch and the power of Jesus. That's what it's bringing attention to. Not the exact number of fish, but Jesus is unbelievable. Look what he did. Amazing. John also points out that the net was not torn. And it could be pointing to the fact that the net of the gospel will never break. It is sufficient for all who believe. After he's given the commission to go preach the gospel, this net doesn't tear. Another time, when he does a miraculous catch of fish, the the nets tear. There's a contrast here. It's not the same story. It's a different story. And now that the gospel has been given, clearly commissioned to go out and spread the gospel, it definitely could allude to, and we know the truth, that the gospel can incorporate everyone who comes and believes in the Son. Uh, so let's look at verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. I mean, 
how silly would that have been? He just, they saw this amazing miracle. Jesus is sitting there with fish already there that he's got cooking before they get there. Why would they say, who are you? Right? They're not going to question him, who he is. They know. And John's just mentioning that. In verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. And this is now the third time that Jesus manifested the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Of course, the other two times were in chapter 20. Now, inviting these men to breakfast... Come and have breakfast. And in serving them, Jesus is inviting them to have an intimate fellowship with him and trust him for the provision to fulfill his call to go in the power of the Spirit and preach the gospel to the world. That's what he's doing. He says, guys, you went out there. I don't think he had to say anything, but in a sense, he's teaching them. You went out there in your own strength, and you tried with all your wisdom and all your skill and all your training to catch fish, and you couldn't do it. But I showed up. I told you to cast your nets on the other side, and you did. And look what happened. You trusted me. Now, they didn't know exactly who he was at the time. I understand that. But later on, they knew, well, it was Jesus. And the reason this happened is because of Jesus. And he's telling them, when you come and have breakfast with me, it's the most intimate thing you do is have, have, have eat with people, especially in this culture. And when I go to Russia here in a couple weeks again, it's real important. When somebody invites you to eat, you don't say no. It's an offense because they're inviting you to an intimate place with them, inviting them to have fellowship. And Jesus says, come and have fellowship with me and abide in me because apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what he's teaching them here. So let's now consider how we can respond to God, what, God, what God is saying through his word to us this morning. The first one, thing I want to say, the first point of implication or application is reject the futility of being self-reliant. Reject the futility of being self-reliant. When the disciples went out in their own power, they caught what? Well, let's just see if we got it again. They caught what? Nothing. Nothing. And when we go out in our own power, we will have the same results. We'll catch nothing. Nothing will happen. I often hear people try to encourage kids by saying, you know what, you can do anything and be anything you want if you just work hard enough. You hear people say that? Happens all the time. I guarantee Coach Dan over here heard that a bunch. All right? And you hear people say that as coaches. I mean, if you can be anything you want, I mean, you can be the greatest linebacker in the history of the world. When you're five foot two, 130, you'll never be the greatest linebacker in the history of the world. That's a lie. And we, we've believed it, even as believers. If we just work hard enough, we can do or be anything that we want to be. No, 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 we cannot. And I'm not saying don't work hard. It's a biblical principle. But it doesn't mean we can do anything we want do and be anything we want to be. It's just a lie, I think, from the, 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 the pit. I mean, I can never be a sinner in the NBA. I'm 6'2", and I'm shrinking. <laughs> You've got to be at least 6'10". I'll never be there. As hard as I work. And no matter how hard we try in our own strength to minister, we will not be successful. And this principle goes beyond just our call, in a sense, to be evangelist. It goes with everything we deal with every day. And I know that people in this room today are walking through some difficult times. There's pain. There's hurt. There's uncertainty. I know that. And I want to encourage you and I want to encourage me when next time I walk through one of those times is reject the futility of being self-reliant. You cannot get through the difficulty relying on yourself.
It's futile. Well, secondly, reject the futility of self-reliance. Secondly, embrace the fruitfulness of being Savior-reliant. Embrace the fruitfulness of being Savior-reliant. When Jesus showed up, things dramatically changed, didn't they? So there's a word but. There's a contrast. When disciples listened and obeyed his voice, nothing became something. Something abundantly. When we show that we trust Jesus by obeying his word and relying on him, the results are fruitfulness. When we rely on the power of Jesus in us, we will see fruit. Success is guaranteed. Now, success in, in his eyes, we've got to be careful about that. But success is guaranteed. The main root for fear in evangelism is self-reliance. Why, do we, why are we fearful? When we go, maybe we think we need to really share the gospel with somebody. We need to tell them about Christ and what he's done. And, and there's this fear that comes over us. Why is that? And every one of the things that we say have to do with us. Relying on us. Just be honest, right? I'm not saying that they're not real fears that we need to get through. But here's how you get through them. Reject being self-reliant. And instead embrace and be the, 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 the fruitfulness of being Savior-reliant. Trust in him. If we really trust in him who rose from the dead and has power over death, right? And gives life that Brandon talked about. What do we have to fear? Nothing. It's his work. And if he doesn't do it, nothing will happen. We can be as clever as we want, take as many training. I'm not saying don't take training classes to be a better evangelist, all right? To be able to share the gospel more clearly. We need to do that. But we can go to all that we want. But if we're relying on ourselves to see a result, it'll never happen. If we rely on Jesus, we will see it. And in the midst of your difficulty, whatever that might be, Whatever it is, rely on the Savior. Rely on the one who calmed the storms, who calmed the winds and the waves, who has power over everything, who overcame death, no matter how difficult it is where you are. And I'm not, I'm not telling you that it's not difficult. And all of us work through different difficulties. But as great as your difficulty is, He is greater. He is greater. So embrace the fruitfulness of being Savior-reliant. And there's one area that overcomes all these things. It's higher and greater importance of being Savior-reliant than any other area. In fact, if this doesn't happen, it can't happen in any other area. When you stand before God one day, when you stand before the maker of this world, the maker of you, why will you be ushered into his presence? Not because of how great you are. And you did more good works than you did bad. None of that. Because it says our works are as filthy rags before him. On our best day, we're not good enough to meet his standard. And we rely on ourselves. You know, I mean, I've been a pretty good person. I'm better than Hitler. Well, the Bible says really, without Christ, we're not. Because we reject God and we just do it in different ways. He rejected it outwardly and it was terrible, no doubt. But we can reject God and be his enemy in the same way, not doing the same things. And that's what the Bible says, that we're sinners. We seek after ourselves, and God calls us to glorify him. No, God, no thanks. I'm, I'm the number one person. He says that he loved us so much, even in that kind of state, that arrogance, that he sent his son to die to take, us, take the place of the penalty we deserved and died for us. We deserve the death. Because he's a just God, he must punish sin. But he's a loving God, so he sent his son to die in our place. 
And he says, we'll quit trusting, quit being self-reliant, and be Savior-reliant. He'll forgive us and make us his child. You've got to start there. And if you've never done that, rejecting being self-reliant and become Savior-reliant and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, I encourage you, I implore you to do that and become his child. And then live in the state of Savior-reliance. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for this account where you taught your disciples a huge, important truth, an essential truth to be able to be successful in this world, to, to honor you, to enjoy the abundant life that you give that Brandon pointed out earlier. Lord, we, we can't have abundant life when we trust in ourselves, but Lord, when we rely on you, we trust in you, we obey you, we go out and we can see fruit, fruit from your work in and through us. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, may we trust in you in every moment of the day. In Jesus' name, amen.